0: Thank you.
1: A little bit after one o'clock Together we're listening to 90.7 FM KPFK Los Angeles All over Southern California Out of Santa Barbara County KPFK is heard at 98.7 FM And of course streaming for the world At KPFK.org Nice to be with you again today Intervision till 2 o'clock this afternoon. I want to, right at the top, thank my wife Doreen for sitting in for me last week. I was out of town on, uh, well, mostly business, a little bit of pleasure. I like to do pleasurable business, so got a lot done, missed y'all, and, uh, hope you enjoyed the show that Doreen did with, uh, our friend Andrew Harvey, a prolific author and mystic. And he's going to return in November. I plan to have Andrew on myself, in November. So we look forward to that. But if you missed the show last week, it's on the KPFK archives. Again, kpfk.org, it'll be archived. And those of you who are receiving our free podcast, well, um, we'll put that out there for you as well. And if you're not getting the podcast yet, you really want to do that, just go to uh, my website or the KPFK website. Or the easiest way is the iTunes Music Store. Type in my name, and you'll be able to subscribe to it. Pretty cool content delivery system. I've been talking a lot with my friends. I'm amazed at how many people think you have to have an iPod to do a, a podcast. A podcast, man, is just a an Internet way of putting a file on your computer for you. You know, it's like there's broadcasting and narrowcasting and now podcasting so that we're not limited by uh, commercial broadcasting. Pretty exciting stuff. So we've got uh, quite a few people listening to KPFK that way. And, again, you get more information if you visit kpfk.org at your leisure. So, again, I'm back in town. We're live today. And I'm excited about this program. We've got an author who... uh, We've invited to be with us today. He's written a couple of books, and uh, I think you're going to really dig this. Um, We're talking about a fellow, well, he can speak better for himself than I can, but I'll just tell you this much, a guy that, uh, like so many of us, I think, was uh, increasingly frustrated and even angered at being born into a world where there's such gross injustice and, um, and violence and war and such, and yet he took his rage and his anger and his frustration, and he found a channel for it, and now he's helping other people with that same thing. So it's sort of like Rage Against the Machine meets Buddhism, and he is a teacher of Buddhism. He, is, uh, he studies with Jack Cornfield, who I know many of you know. His books are Dharma Punks and the new one, Against the Stream, Noah Levine, Noah Levine. Welcome to KPFK.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: Appreciate you coming down today. Yeah. So, uh, how did this come about? How does a guy who rides a Harleys all tatted out, smokes unfiltered cigarettes, and has an attitude find the Dharma?
2: Well, I don't know how much about the attitude, but, um, you know, my experience was growing up with the Dharma. My father, Stephen Levine, since birth, I was. Subjected to spiritual, you know, Hindu, Buddhist stuff. You know, Ram Das is my uncle. And, you know, I grew up with these cats, right? And I thought that they were really cool when I was a child. And then as I became an adolescent, I was like, what are these hippies doing? You know, what's this closing your eyes? Are they ignoring the gross injustice in this world? You know, in my own confusion, and my own path, growing up in 70s and 80s, led me to the punk rock movement. When I was 10 years old and I heard the Sex Pistols, I was like, these guys are screaming about how I feel. You know, they're expressing the angst and the rage and the dissatisfaction that is uh, my mind state and my my heart's
1: experience. the way I felt about Dylan 20 years earlier, man. Same thing. These guys saying what we felt, but I didn't have the words
2: to say. Didn't have the words, Exactly. So, I mean, I found community in the punk scene. I found, uh, some relief with the drugs and the booze and the violence and slam dancing. What a, what a great relief to, uh, let out some of that angst and anger and rage that I was feeling. And it took many years, uh, and, and a great resistance. And the whole punk rock conditioning is very anti-spiritual, anti-religious, anti your generation, right? right? It's like, oh, well, we're rejecting you guys, too. Kill the hippies. Kill the hippies. So, you know, a decade lost in that world of trying to channel my rebellion in this punk rock driven uh, revolutionary spirit. And, you know, the short of it is what happened for me is that I ended up strung out on drugs, smoking crack, shooting heroin, committing crimes. I started getting locked up when I was 12 years old. By the time I was 17, I had three felony counts because I was not a revolutionary. I was a drug addict. You know, I had lost my dreams of anarchy in, uh, you know, a full time pursuit of oblivion in this nihilistic. This world is so unjust and so much of my own personal pain That just, you know, full time, how can I get numb and stay numb? Until, of course, what happened for me was that it stopped working. What we call uh, a bottom. Yeah, you hit bottom. Hit bottom. Bottomed out. Incarcerated. You know, I'd been suicidal most of my life. You know, my, one of my earliest memories is of wanting to kill myself. Hmm. You know, and I, I, I think that part of that is my father, hospice. I'm visiting dying patients with him. I'm given this Eastern view as a child of reincarnation. And that death isn't the enemy. And that death is just a transition into another realm. And so in my child mind, I said, well, I don't like this realm. I don't like this world. If I can just plunge this knife into my guts mm-hmm. and go to another world or another lifetime get
1: dealt another
2: hand, maybe hey, I'm all in yeah. <laughs> I fold I fold yes, exactly <laughs> I fold
1: so what's your dad saying to you all this time and these other guys you say you know you've known Ramdok since you were a kid. Since what are I, these guys since say I was to
2: born you? I mean yeah. all of these guys did, are there. Did,
1: did did their appeals to you have any uh, help?
2: You know, there's a couple of pieces there. One is that on some level, they were a little bit clueless of what was going on with me. They, you know, didn't really know the extent of my suffering. Either I hid it well or they weren't paying attention well enough. By the time they were aware, when I was a teenager and I was getting arrested a lot, um, I was, what they say, unteachable. You know, they were saying, you know, they were giving me teachings. They were saying, like, you know, you're just hurting yourself. You're just hurting the family. Uh, you know, we care about you. We love you. We want what's best for you. Uh, but I was gone. You know, I was checked out at 16 years old. I split for good. I said, Dad, hitting the road. And at that point, my father said, well, OK. I don't feel like I can stop you. Um but you really need to know that you're fully responsible for all of your actions. And the messes that you create are going to follow you, you know. And giving me this karma teaching.
1: I was gonna say, did you believe in karma as well?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get it, of course. You know, I was just young, angry. I said, okay, cool, bye. (laughs) Years later. After a turnaround, I started I felt resentful at my father. I was like, I was 16. I was strung out. You let me leave. Why'd you Mm. let me leave? I see. You know, send me to rehab, do something. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I thought about it. He said, I thought maybe maybe send you to rehab or something like that. He's like, but I knew that if I didn't let you leave with love, we would lose contact for good and you would leave anyways. Mm. But if I let you leave with love. And this subtle warning that at least we would be able to stay in contact. So where did you go? And did you I have, hit the streets.
1: And did you have a you talked about bottoming out. Did you have a, a complimentary experience, an epiphany at some point, or did it just gradually dawn on you?
2: Yeah. Well, the experience for me was a gradual uh acknowledgement of addiction. Of like, I'm, you know, I'm not partying, I'm strung out. And I'm stealing, lying and cheating to support my habit. Wanting to stop, not knowing how to stop. That mantra, I'll never do this again
0: mm-hmm.
2: on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Breaking the pipes, breaking the needles, you know, until the morning when it was like, I need it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that was sort of a gradual process. And then the, the big epiphany was... Around May 10th, 1988, almost 19 years, over 19 years ago, where I was drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning and I broke into a car and stole the stereo to go and trade for drugs and I got busted. And in the holding cell, I tried to commit suicide. And then I kind of, you know, I was pretty drunk and sort of in a what I like to call a brownout. Because I wasn't totally clear what was happening at the time, but it started to come back later. (laughs) Not a total blackout. Gotcha. And I woke up the next day in the suicide watch room, the padded room. For the first time in my life on that day, I feel like for the first time in my life on that day, um, I had the epiphany, the, the moment of clarity, the insight that, I was fully responsible for where I was. My whole life I had blamed society, the system, the hippies, the, you know, whoever. Out there placing blame. It's their fault. I'm a product of my environment, a, a casualty of our capitalist society. And cop out. <laughs> well, and it's I,
1: not that it's not true. It's not that
2: it's not true. It's just
1: not the whole truth. It's
2: still a cop out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's just partway there. Now, was this the result of you, like, was this deductive logic that you arrived at this, or was it really an inspiration?
2: No, it was just um, out of the depths of so much suffering, feeling like such a failure. And all of the fear. Last time, I was just locked up two months before that, and I had a seven-year prison sentence over my head. The judge said, if I got a parking ticket, Mm -hmm. and now I got busted for another felony. So, the fear of i 'm spending the rest of my life in prison right, and the pain of i couldn 't even kill myself correctly last night, feeling like i 'm a failure at life i 'm a failure at can can 't even kill yeah. myself right. that that pain it really felt like spontaneous broke through the denial and the rationalization of my life
1: what well, 's funny you know i don 't mean funny like humor, but odd. Um, <laughs> Even John Stewart on The Daily Show was talking about Scooter Libby going to prison and how he's going to find the Koran, you know, because that's what happens. The brother goes to prison, he finds the Koran. Or they find Jesus, and you discovered Buddhism. Now, was it in jail, or was it after that?
2: It was. I mean, in that experience, I mean, two things, you know, several things happened. One was there was that, okay, I'm here because of my own actions, not because of everyone else which brought both a tremendous amount of shame and guilt and also brought some hope. Because if this is me, then I can maybe do something about it. And the next day or a couple of days later, my father, Stephen Levine, called and said, you know, I'm sorry that you're in this pain and try meditation. You know, when I was complaining about I'm going into prison, I feel so bad about, you know, I'm tortured by my head and my and I'm detoxing from drugs. And he said, well, in the present moment, you have food, you have shelter, you have clothing. Try present time awareness, try bringing your attention to your breath. And at first I was very skeptical, deep in skepticism, deep in me. And I was like, I-, I need real help, Dad. How about a lawyer, not your hippie meditation shit? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's, and he shared with me, and I don't know if you knew, you know this about him, but he shared with me that he didn't meditate just because it was groovy, but that actually it had in many ways saved his life, that he'd been strung out on drugs. My father did Time on Rikers Island in the 60s before I was born.
1: And you didn't know any of that? Then, or
2: Not really. You know, maybe, but it never really sunk in that that's what this spiritual practice stuff was about. When he shared that, and I could relate, you know, I love my father. When I could relate a little bit more deeply to that he'd been where I was at that moment. He did, you know, Time on Rikers. and well,
0: wow.
2: And that moment I said, okay, I'll try it. I have exhausted my options. Mm-hmm. my drug violence crime fear based existence has not worked tried all tried everything I else. tried it all yeah I'll try meditation even I'll stoop so low yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as to try out Dad's passive contemplative practice
1: and this is a strict Zen type. Uh, we're talking about a meditation, not where we use mantras or visualization, but a mindful awareness, letting go of the thought, or at least watching the thought from a detached place.
2: The original instruction that I was offered, which is also the Buddha's first offering to most people for meditation, is breath awareness.
1: Ah, watching the breath. Yeah. At the Bring your attention
2: the to your breath, which allows us to let go of thinking about the future, thinking about the past. And as I took that and I was in my cell and I started meditating, it was such a revelation to me, Michael, that it was amazing. For the first time, I realized I could choose what I paid attention to.
1: You have choices.
2: My whole life, I just paid attention and and did whatever my mind said and felt and addicted to thinking and feeling and reacting. With that simple meditation instruction, it was clear to me right from the beginning, however hard it was, I couldn't stay with the breath, but that I could choose to redirect out of the fear of the future, the regret of the past, away from the resentments and the rage to the simple sensation of breath.
1: Right here, right now.
2: Right here, right now. It only gave me a half a second of relief, but that was much better than no relief at all.
1: It's a (laughs) toehold.
2: It's a toehold. You know, I heard Alan
1: Watts, uh, uh, an Alan Watts tape recently, and sometimes I think I've heard all of them and then a new one pops up because they've been played on this station for, you know, since the, the early 50s or mid-50s when this station went on the air. And uh, Alan was saying that perhaps the reason that in the Hindu and, and Buddhist and Taoist and, you know, yoga traditions of being in the moment, being present, and doing a breath-watching meditation, that of all things that we could have watched, the reason the breath was chosen, he surmises, or perhaps was taught, was that, I mean, it could have been many other things that the teachers suggested we focus our attention on, but breath is a response that is at once both voluntary and involuntary. Mm -hmm. And this was something I hadn't thought of. I know breath watching really centers you, and wonderful relaxation exercise starts to quiet the mind. It is a practice mm-hmm.
2: it 's a preliminary practice
1: it, it, it'll get you going though yeah. it'll get you going, yeah. and pretty soon the mind says all right i 'm going to go to from ten thoughts to six thoughts at a time, and then i'm going to get down to that dialogue, and we 'll just argue for a while and pretty, but it really works, but I hadn't really thought of the idea that here is choice in a pinpoint. Mm-hmm. You can allow yourself to be breathed, mm-hmm. or you could consciously breathe,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's a perpetual choice that you have. Yes. And then it goes, it ripples out from there.
2: For sure. And, I mean, I mean it's a larger conversation, too, about the different traditions, even though it's a, a common teaching amongst traditions. Many traditions, you know, teach, yoga traditions often teach to control the breath. Buddhist, what does
1: that mean? What do you mean by to control, control it?
2: To intentional, like you said, you know, it's volitional or non-volitional. You can either let the bo- body breathe itself, or you can, you know, like do the pranayama or the kriya, you know, breathing where you control it.
1: Like uh, time Glenn, the 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 clearing breath yep. uh, in the good air Any, it anytime, goes the better.
2: Yeah, anytime that you're intentionally making your breath deep or shallow or loud or quiet. I see. Not letting the body just breathe. It's involuntary Do it's way, thing. Yeah. yeah. And Buddhism, and originally, my understanding is, is that the Buddha was much more into just the observation, the experience of the body breathing itself without controlling it. And so, yes, it's a common practice, but it's used uh, in different ways by different people.
1: Let me reintroduce you. Noel sure. Levine is my guest, and uh, he's written a couple of books. Uh, the newest one is *Against the Stream*. His first book is. Dharma Punks, and speaks directly to what we chatted about in the opening minutes of the program here today on KPFK, uh, this idea that uh, Noah, like so many young people, we come into the world angry and frustrated, just outraged at the uh, the gross injustices of the world and uh, the, the lack of um, intention on the part of so many to do anything about it, like let's just look the other way while we... Uh, careen into uh, the outer r- rings of hell, and uh, yet he found a way out, and uh, it turns out to be a discovery of self. I mean, do you think of Buddhism in the way a Christian would think of discovering Jesus, or do you think more of finding a Christ, a Buddha within you?
2: Yeah, it changes for me. Has changed for me over the last couple of decades. Where in the beginning um I was actually still quite embarrassed. Even though I got meditation's going to help me. This is salvation, this practice. <laughs> uh, I was still I wasn't very identified with it. And I wasn't gonna admit to anybody <laughs> that I was doing it.
1: Something you did but not yet someone you are. Yeah. Okay.
2: But I think in the beginning it was that feeling of like this practice you know may save me, but I always understood that it was out of my own effort that meditation wasn't going to help me unless I meditated, and that the Buddha wasn't going to bless me with some grace unless I followed the teachings and did the work myself, right much different than taking on a theistic concept that says this external power is somehow going to save me
1: yeah get in line and if you get in the right line you go to the head of the class i
2: got it from the beginning that this is powerful medicine Mm -hmm. i also got that i have to take the medicine on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and
1: that medicine is know thyself
2: yes sure
1: i mean that's where it begins yeah
2: yeah sure know thyself i mean for me it was present time awareness Let me let go of the future, let go of the past, be with myself right here, right now, face the fear and the anger and the resentments and all of that uh, stuff directly.
1: There's much in Buddhism that we, as Westerners, misunderstand, I think, especially as presented this idea that no matter where we are in our lives, that we should be able to immediately off that ego and leap up this ladder uh, to a sense of self as the observer, the witness, the higher self, the true self, the soul. Don't you think it's a process? Would you agree with Eric Fromm, for example, when he said, only the fully realized ego can be dropped? Is there a transition that we have to go through? Do we have to develop that which we then let go?
2: Um, I don't know the answer. That philosophy makes some sense to me. I don't know that it applies to everyone. I think that most of us, uh, by the time we're adults, whatever that means, have a pretty uh, fully developed ego. I think that there are some who have fractured ego, who have a fractured sense of self, that because of their over-engulfing or abandonment issues, haven't developed a full kind of healthy ego self, whatever that means, right? For those I completely agree with Fromm and others who have said you have to have a self before you dissolve the delusion of self. Right. For some. I don't know that that's true for everyone. I see. I think that most people actually, if you have somewhat of a, you know, not completely traumatic upbringing. That your sense of self is ready to be dissolved now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well,
1: I do. Yeah. And yet I see, I've seen myself and I'm sure will continue to catch myself from time to time thinking that I have made some sort of progress, mm-hmm. like I'm moving up. And yet the real conundrum is you're not going place. Yeah. And what you're aspiring to you've already got and you already are, so just realize you're not climbing any ladder here. I love a lot of those allegories, you know, of the stairway to heaven uh, yeah. and the path of liberation and the middle way and I think there's a lot of richness there. But at the same time, when a philosopher talks about unfolding,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and realizing that which we already are mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, we have to collect all of these models. We're not going to find one model, Mm -hmm. two or three dimensional model that (laughs) that explains the finer points of reality.
2: Well, I make great points, uh, you know, and and really explicit perspective in against the stream that I think that um, most people have a, a huge delusion and mistake about what enlightenment is. And and I that I have a very clear perspective based on my own experience, not that I'm saying I'm enlightened, but based on my own progress and my understanding of what the Buddha taught, that uh, enlightenment is not a perfection of the mind or a complete dissolving of a sense of self or an ego. It doesn't get rid of emotions. It doesn't get rid of difficult thoughts or feelings. What enlightenment, what spiritual progress brings is more awareness, more wisdom to the fact that that ego is a natural phenomena, that it's not personal, that it's an impersonal thing that the mind and body create, and that it's not who we are. And so that spiritual awareness, spiritual awakening brings a transformation in our perspective, not in our uh, personality.
1: Do you think an ego or 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 a persona, uh, the roles we play, mostly to please other people and earn from them what we don't know how to bestow upon ourselves, that uh, that's an important part of survival, that that was maybe necessary in other times, in more ancient times, and that As humanity evolves, if we survive long enough, that we can move toward that place of, oh, that's just the part that identifies with the fleshy, separative self. That's okay. You need that guy, but you're much more.
2: Yes. I completely feel that it's like that, that it's... um of course, there's a sense of self. Of course, there's a personality. It's impersonal, though. It's not who we are. Ultimately, the Buddha goes to great lengths to explain this, that there are two truths, two levels. There's the relative level, your personality and life's conditions. And then there's the ultimate. And we, when we talk about not self and dissolving the ego, that's an ultimate teaching. We can't re- you know, the Buddha didn't relate in the relative world from that ultimate place. He talked about I, he talked about himself as I, me, mine, on the relative. This is my experience. This is what I think. Right? And he had a personality. But he ultimately, he also had the perspective of none of that is me. None of that is my true nature or my ultimate identity.
1: All those separate bits.
2: All those separate bits. And so it's important, I think, for us to be really relaxed about like, yeah, I've got a personality. It's conditioned psychologically by these life's experiences and by what I'm trying to present and get and all that stuff. But to play with it lightly and be like, yeah, there's a per-. like me covered in tattoos and, you know, my whatever punk rock identification. That's what I identify with. Maybe for you, the, the hippie, you know, uh, cultural revolutionary movement like you identify as that. But that's not who we are. Right. We know that there's a great, much larger, uh, process unfolding here than our cultural, personal identities. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't need, mean we need to throw them away. One of the things that pisses me off a lot about people that get involved in spirituality is when they try to start being Asian. Yeah. When they, you know, these Westerners who think like, oh well, I gotta act like Chogyam Trungpa or His Holiness the Dalai Lama or, because they're so trying not to be themselves. Like, be yourself. And don't take yourself so seriously. This is about being kind, being generous, being loving. You know, not about looking like you're... Something that you're not, like you're holy. Yeah,
1: yeah. You get all the right books on your shelf. You hang out at the Bodhi tree. You must be on the spiritual path. And then you got we, the
2: shawl. You yeah, got the
1: the beads, and and, <laughs> and uh, but a lot of it is BS because we still have all that hurt and all that loneliness and uh, and the confusion and the fear. And we got to get real about that. I think again and again. You know, I did a show here a few weeks ago on loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I tried to stay positive mm-hmm. and st- and state themes in a positive way, mm-hmm. and I just felt a strong need to do a show on loneliness, Wonderful. and it was so popular, we did another one the next week and just opened the phones. And, Mia, there is this. Again, I think it's rooted, as you've already suggested, in a spiritual crisis, the ultimate separation anxiety mm-hmm to be ripped from the bosom of, of of oneness and find ourselves in these separate bodies mm-hmm. gradually. I mean, birth is probably the the beginning of the trauma. And then parenting, and then we look around the world, and it's like, why are... It, it, it's like the story of St. Arthur, really, where he encounters death and sickness and aging, and it's like, what's this? Right? And he starts asking the question.
2: And we got to do this over and over yeah. and over? Yes, <laughs> <I
1: guess>. because <laughs> life's so short. Let me ask you before the break about anger. Sure. Because there are many holy women and men who offer themselves out as teachers who say that anger is a bad thing. And I sort of feel like being stuck in my anger is a bad thing. But that to allow myself to be angry also is to allow myself to find the hurt in the anger, to personalize it, to take some ownership of it. And that offers me an opportunity to understand myself better. And so I'm not ashamed of being angry. I I choose to stay as conscious as possible to minimize hurtful words that may come from that anger. I got the violence under control. I'm not smashing walls with my fist anymore. Bad for the wall, bad for the fist, I found out. So I learned to let go of that. But I still get angry, man. I really do. And I'm learning to be okay with that as part of a larger process. Your take on that.
2: Well, I spent most of my life angry. Meditation, introspection, allow me to begin to investigate and observe, well, what what is anger? Not in a mental way, but really, how does it feel in my body? Where is it coming from? What's going on here? Um, I began to see for myself that my anger, which was a lot of my experience a lot of the time, was always masking something else. That underneath my anger, there was always some fear, some pain, some shame. Some loneliness, some guilt, some hurt. hurt. Some hurt, yeah. And so in my practice of being able to get underneath the anger, even though that's the surface reactive experience of softening, of getting down beneath the anger to the hurt and beginning to meet it with compassion, with loving kindness and forgiveness of that anger and of the pain. That actually, eventually, over 10, 15 years of practicing in this way, anger still arises. It's not a problem. I don't believe that anger disappears. I don't believe that there's anything wrong with anger. I think that if you have a mind and a body, you're going to experience anger. I believe that the enlightened Buddha continued to experience anger. I I believe that what happens is our relationship as i was saying before a relationship to our personality a relationship to self a relationship to anger drastically changes and i was afraid as many are is that what if i let go of my anger i won't be politically active anymore i won't be socially engaged i won't be raged at the system
1: i'll stop caring
2: i'll stop caring I was completely wrong. I think that that is a great delusion. That actually what happens is that anger is replaced with compassion. And that compassion is caring passionately. That We do the exact same. We're actually more effective when we care and we're passionate about what we care about. Without masking it with the anger. Anger hurts. Compassion feels really good. Coming back to your... Question, I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with anger. I don't think that you're unspiritual if you experience anger. Actually, I think you're f- full of it if you say you don't experience anger. It's the probably, Dalai Lama admits to yeah. experiencing anger. The Buddha admitted to experiencing anger. Yes. So these charlatans out there that are saying anger is the enemy need to check their facts.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> I love that. You know? Again, it's the, it, it's a sign of enlightenment that we can admit that we still have one foot on the other side of the door. That, uh, you know, Ramdas years ago, uh, told a story of walking by a triple X rated theater in Manhattan and he stopped and he'd never seen a, a porn film. Well, he's Ramdas though. So, He's in this dilemma, you know. Like the self is curious about this pornography. Higher self says, "No, you're a guru. You're a teacher. You can't do this." And he's like one leg on each side of the fence, and he's actually getting in line as this hippie walks down the street and sees him and says, "Ramdas."
2: <laughs> no, it's not me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. So he says, (laughs) and, as Providence would have it, just then the line moved forward one step. And he had a choice of acknowledging, yes, I'm in line and I am Ramdas," by taking that step forward. Or, oh, no, I'm just happening to, you know. And uh, I think it's dealing with that dilemma that is at least one sign of a real teacher. And I've about had it with the phonies. That pretend that enlightenment is a place that you can get to that is all sweetness and light. And when their friends die, they don't hurt. Yeah. And when their friends get sick, they don't get afraid. Yeah. I mean, let's look for teachers who are in it. Well, they say in it, but not of it. Yeah. In it and of it, but aware. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Awake yeah. and aware of the contradiction. Yeah.
2: I'm, of course, you know, completely with you. It's one of the reasons that I did Dharma punks the way that I did. I wanted to, and I was already teaching Buddhism and, and that, but I wanted to share how this stuff had helped me directly. Not that, oh, hey, I'm this spiritual guy that likes punk rock of like this stuff transformed my life from drugs and violence and crime to, you know, a place of being able to be free from drugs, be free from violence, be free from crime, and to dedicating my life to helping others in a real way. And I'm a, you know, and that I still, at one point in the, um, uh, in Dharma Punks, I tell the story about how I'm in India on pilgrimage, and I take, uh, the Bodhisattva vows, you know, for, I won't take enlightenment, you know, with the Dalai Lama, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and, uh, I won't take enlightenment until all sentient beings are free. 24 hours later, me and my friends are checking into a guest house in um, New Delhi. We took the train from Bodh Gaya to New Delhi. And the the guest house guys won't let us check in because one of our friends has dreadlocks. And he says, you know, he's a, a scoundrel, so he can't stay here at this guest house. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm pissed off. I'm threatening this guy with a stick. I'm saying, you racist, fascist bastard, you will let us stay here. You know, and I just had to start laughing of like, right. you know, 24 hours ago, I took the <laughs> compassion vows, yeah. and here I am threatening this confused Indian yeah. man.
1: <laughs> There's a term in theosophy, the dweller on the threshold. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, the door gets open. We get one foot through the door. But no, no, I I don't know, man, about, you know, going that far. And so we sort of hang there, one leg in each world for a little while. Let's take a short break. My guest is Noah Levine. He is the author of Dharma Punks and most recently Against the Stream. You may know his dad, Stephen Levine, a prolific author. and spiritual and metaphysical matters and uh, those with us live in studio will take your telephone calls if you have questions about his experience as a dharma punk if you will and 818 uh, 985 the number to call brooks is our producer you'll talk to her 985 kpfk in the 818 area code we'll be right back kpfk in your radio 90.7 FM all over Southern California. Out of Santa Barbara County, you can hear KPFK at 98.7 FM and, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. Noel Levine's my guest, and uh, we've been chatting since the top of the hour. We're going to go till 2 o'clock. We're talking about Buddhism.
2: Dude, um, uh, <laughs> dude. Dudeism.
1: It's uh, a whole new philosophy we just invented in the...
2: It's very Californian. it is Is
1: yeah, all right, so no <laughs> sense trying to cover that one uh let's see we were we were talking about anger uh i want I want to go to the telephones a little bit uh do you think the uh, breath watching practice is a good way for people to get started, and what about those who say uh to you, I just can't seem to get my mind quiet enough to
2: meditate. Um breath seems to be good for about eighty percent of people what the The beginning instruction that I want people to get is present time awareness. If the breath is a good thing that's happening in the present, you can pay attention to it good if there's if that's not you know what's the best it's not that accessible, then choose something else. Do hearing, present time hearing. Let go of the future, let go of the past, be here, be here in your experience now. Do body sensations. Sit still, pay attention to your ass on the cushion. You don't have to pay attention to your breath, but pay attention to the present moment, not the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations.
1: We think of eternity as this whole huge collection of time, this giant hunk of time, When, in fact, it's an instant that doesn't end, how how do you describe it?
2: Yeah, impermanence, you know, constantly changing, moment to moment unfolding.
1: But it's the timeline that gets us in trouble. In fact, doesn't time
2: have a rhythm? Doesn't it have an in-breath and an out-breath? Doesn't it go well ultimately really there's no such thing as time, right? It's a man made uh you know, there's this kind of there's the cycles of day and stuff, but there's no it's always now. But and and then it's gonna be later. But the, <laughs> now it's now and then it's gonna be later. Yet, it was then and
1: Yet the Dalai Lama wears a Rolex.
2: Of course. Like it's a um it's an agreed upon Convenience. Convention it's a g- agreed right. upon convention. It's like. a distance
1: between events and space. So yeah. if you have space, you have to have time and vice versa.
2: Perhaps. I don't, I don't get into it. You know, like the Buddha wouldn't get into these kind of debates very much. Yeah. He would say, you know, this isn't creating your suffering. Time's not the problem. Your attachment is the problem. So all I teach is freedom from attachment. F- compassion towards pain. You know, the Buddha over and over, he was very practical, very very much a pragmatist. When people would start asking him about time and space and creation and self and God and all this stuff, he would just say, like, I don't teach philosophy. I teach practical experience that will free you from suffering. And so, I mean, I think it's a very interesting conversation, but I don't think about it too much.
1: So when people say Buddhism is not a religion, it's a philosophy, you'd say it's not even that. It's a practice. It's a practice. And enlightenment is not a
2: destination. Uh, yes, actually, I believe it is. But tell, explain that. To well, if enlightenment means freedom from misidentification with taking it all personal, attachment to pleasure and aversion to pain, yes, that is our goal. That is the destination. It doesn't change your personality. It doesn't change your, uh, you know, much of anything other than your perspective. You no longer suffer about stuff. So I do feel that it is good to have the intention. I mean, it's the second factor of uh, the Eightfold Path in Buddhism. First, he says, understand the way it is here. Then make sure that you have the right intention and that your intention is towards enlightenment. Not, you know, some otherworldly thing, but that you're pointed in the right direction, that you're pointed in the direction of more compassion and less aversion
1: and that includes compassion and forgiveness for self doesn't it
2: for sure well i m- more than includes
1: it i'd say that if it
2: doesn't come from the inside out it's not genuine because we're so hard on ourselves we're so critical and uh, if we would but
1: look at our intention and say yeah i messed that up but my intention was good i mean i or if we hear a parent's voice saying, "Yeah, Benner, you really are a moron," or yeah. "Michael, you know, you're a dope," or whatever, uh, the bullies from childhood, are, or those echoes that we have in our heads—that's really us it, accepting that stuff. Yeah. And if we would look at intention, I think intention is a synonym for will. Yeah. And Motivation,
2: it's, will. Yeah, it's sure. just it
1: doesn't always work out the way we intended it to work out.
2: Yeah, but it's also um, for direction, for aim, right? I want to go that way, knowing that I'm not going to be able to go that way perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's my aim, it's my intention, it's my goal to be free from suffering for the benefit of all sentient beings. But I know that I'm going to constantly fail along the way.
1: What about your new book, Against the Stream? Uh, That, I guess, borrows or refers to the Buddhist cone about not pushing the river.
2: Not really. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he said, when he reflected on how did I get here, he said this Pali word, patiso tagami, against the stream. He referred to his awakening and his teachings as an act of rebellion, of going against the normal human streams of greed, hatred, and delusion. He said, all of my teachings are against greed, are against hatred, are against delusion. Even the simple mindfulness is against delusion. All compassion is against hatred. All generosity is against greed. He said that really we're wired to get attached and to be aversive. We were talking about anger earlier. That's such a human, natural thing. It's not your fault. It's just what we experience. He said enlightenment is to rebel against the normal, angry mentality of existence and to uncover that buried compassionate response that's beneath the reactive anger. You teach locally? Yeah. When's your class? Every Monday I have a class in Santa Monica at the Santa Monica Zen Center. Now, I don't teach Zen. We just rent from them. Um, But some of my teaching is inspired by some of the Zen masters, but mostly coming from a Theravadin Vipassana Buddhist perspective.
1: And your website so folks can get more info?
2: Dharmapunks.com. D-H-A-R-M-A, P-U-N-X, not K-S, P-U-N-X. And my teaching schedule is on there, Mondays, 7.30, Santa Monica. I teach once a month in uh, San Diego. I don't know if listeners in San Diego get we this. We do.
1: We do have some down
2: there. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm actually teaching tonight in San Diego at the Dharma Bum Center on 2nd Avenue downtown. Excellent. And uh, that's also on the website. You know, I just Googled
1: Noah Levine, and you, you popped right up. You are the only... Or maybe not the only, but. Your name comes right up on the. Yeah, I
2: mean, there's a lot on the internet. MySpace is actually. uh, featuring Against the Stream as the book of the week. So there's now like all of these, you know, thousands and thousands of, of people, of kids on on MySpace uh, sharing their opinions about Against the Stream, even though none of them have read, it, read, yet. It, yeah, it's yeah, read it It's great, it's great controversy. <laughs> Let's take some calls. <laughs> Would you <laughs> sure, like love to,
1: to go down to Anaheim and Jim? You're on KPFK, it's Intervision. My guest is Noel Levine. Hi, Jim.
0: Hi, oh, thank you so much for the show. This is great. Thanks. Um, Noah, I just wonder, um, in my own personal life, trying to walk the, the path of a, of a sacred activist, I, I find like there's a lot of um, isolation, because my activist, activist friends don't find the value in, in spirituality. Um, people that call themselves spiritual don't don't see the value in in activism and, and being a part of the process. Of, yeah. And then there's the culture at large, which is neither. Right. And and walking that path just leads to it's like, oh my God, I can't relate to anybody anymore. Yeah. You know, and I wonder if, if you experience that and how do you deal with that?
2: I have experienced that a bit. Um, you know, for me, it wasn't quite the same thing as the activist versus spiritual, but growing up in the punk scene and then starting to. Practice, you know, spirituality. My my punk friends were like, "What have you, you know, become religious? Have you lost your mind?" Mm-hmm. You know, so there has been a lot of that sort of split for me. Um, although slowly over the last couple of decades, that has um, really lessened to where it has come together, and all of these punks are practicing with me, and we have a very much a, a kind of engaged activist bent in our community, and that's really what I say to you um, is that you know, like you have your activist community. And maybe you, I don't, don't know if you have a spiritual community, but to find a spiritual activist community. Mm. There's this uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship that has organized, uh, you know, Buddhist activists all over the country.
1: Peace in every step walk, the Thich Nhat Hanh and, and stuff. And Thich Nhat
2: Hanh stuff, and this is inspired by that. Um, to find a community of people that are like-minded revolutionaries. Right. You know, there's actually a place out in New Mexico, via Citos, that just does meditation retreats only for socially engaged activists. Right. Yeah. And so there's been quite a movement of bringing these things together, of getting activists involved in, in positive <laughs> practices, and, um, you know, getting these fake spiritual people off of their, you know, asses and out into the world to practice what they preach.
0: Yeah, but it, it seems like it seems like that's the way that it's all going. It, it's like there's so much in the new age that's becoming so airy fairy. Yeah. You know, it just it, it's like you got to get real.
2: I totally know. agree with you, but that's there is some real. That's what I'm saying is that there's some real stuff out there that you will be able to find if you look. Yeah,
1: Okay. You'll notice how rarely we use that word, for example, on intervision. For sure. that very reason, because the unicorns and rainbows ain't going to do it. <laughs> This is no way, man. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's go to Shirley in West LA. You're on KPFK and Intervision with Noah Levine. Hi, Shirley.
0: Oh, hi. Let me get uh, the (laughs) radio. Oh, hi. Thank you. Yeah, um, I love this show. Thank you, Michael and Noah. My question is, if I'm listening to the radio and I'm meditating at the same time, do I still get the same benefit as if I'm meditating when it's quiet? you still. Uh,
2: well, what what do you mean listening to? Are you listening to music on the radio?
0: Uh, no, sometimes I listen to music on the radio, and sometimes I, uh, you know, like I put on the Sedona method or something. I Ooh. lay in bed and I'm just kind of meditating and trying to get information to. Right. Besides my quiet time. What, how, does that work?
2: Um, it depends on what your goal for meditation is. If you're, if you're meditating for like stress reduction, relaxation, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, then fine. Yeah. If it helps you relax and you're just chilling out, cool. If you actually want spiritual transformation, right. probably time to turn off the radio and just observe your mind itself rather than trying to get double tasking and getting information.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Okay, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's
2: a great
1: question and a great <laughs> answer. Again, I really I really believe that there's a, a, a need for personal development as a prelude to spiritual development and that, that there is that process. Sure. Yeah, there's visualization for accelerated learning and sports psychology and goal-setting and very practical, worldly stuff, and then, in addition... There is the mindful detachment.
2: Well, you know, I also work as a psychotherapist. I didn't say that. I didn't even know. I I have a master's degree in psychology and I work with, you know, clients on, you know, developing what you're saying, the sense of self and, you know, the kind of gradual process. And I tell almost all of my meditation students I think they could develop from you know could could use some some psychology. And I tell all of my psych clients that they could use some meditation. Good. I think it's very complementary. Yeah, I do yeah.
1: too. Uh, we have a caller who didn't want to be on the air, but wants to know if you have an opinion about Jack Kerouac, something about. Well,
2: of course, Dharma Pumps Dharma is Punks. the you know inspired by Dharma Bums. Right. Um so my opinion I mean I'm a fan is my opinion wrong generation Um the, yeah no the beats really inspired me you know like there was something for me there was a disconnect Where because I think because of my father and Ramdas and you know uncle RD and Cornfield all these guys I couldn't connect with them in the beginning as well as the beats because it was a generation removed Before, right. and they were a little bit raw the beatniks you know they were a little bit you know kind of tougher you know, they're Kerouac, you know, and Snyder and and, and Ginsberg, and and you know, like even though there's a real crossover with the hippies, right. they were a little bit cooler to me. So I'm a am a huge fan of that. Now, ultimately, uh, I don't think it's very good dharma, Kerouac stuff. I think that you know, I could go as far as to say, you know, they're getting loaded too much. They're not, you know, being very immoral with some of their sexuality and. You know, I don't think they're great Dharma practitioners in what they present in their writings, some of them. But I love the fact that they were intending to integrate Dharma with wildness. Yeah, because that's also what I want to do. I want to, you know, I'm going to ride my motorcycle down to, uh, you know, San Diego tonight. I feel very much like you know Kerouac jumping trains or whatever. Easy rider. All of yeah, that. for sure. Yeah. I, I do believe in a moral, ethical basis and, and a renunciation and, and really not trying to cause harm and not being getting loaded and, and not uh, you know being careful with our sexuality, which I think got left behind with some of the Beats. They didn't quite get some of that stuff. Well, it is fascinating. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Fascinating to watch. Again, I'm
1: more of the hippie era, but I remember the Bohemians led to uh, a lot of the great literature and art of the early part of the century was so beat. And then there were the the beats, the beatniks and the bongos and the poetry and avant-garde art and, and then the hippies and then the acid came.
2: The truth is it's a lineage, right? Bohemian beat, hippie, punk lineage. Right. Even gotta, though we all say we don't like those other guys, <laughs> you know they're not no, part they're of all, us. We stand on their shoulders, but we stand on their shoulders. We
1: do, and we share a sense of their outrage. Now, there's more reason to be outraged than ever. I think there's more anger, but against that, that's the angst that that uh, you know. You yeah. and this previous caller were talking about. Um, Well, he used the word sacred activism, and last week when Doreen sat in for me, my wife, and interviewed uh, Andrew Harvey, he talked about blending spiritual passion with righteous indignation at the state of the world, that they're not opposites, Mm -hmm. that they can be blended, that those fires can come together. Would you agree?
2: I agree, and I think that there's definitely a place for fierce compassion. And that compassion doesn't mean that it has to be soft and not motivated, that there can be this place of maybe even aggressive, hands-on, nonviolent activism. The
1: spiritual warrior. For
2: sure, revolutionary action.
1: And that's one who faces not an external enemy, but his internal fears?
2: Both. Both. Facing ourselves is revolutionary and and warrior-like, but also acting and and speaking out against the racist, sexist, oppressive uh, system that's at work here in this world I think is very, very important, not just self, but also worldly engagement.
1: Let's see if we can squeeze one more call in again from West L.A. Robert, you're on InterVision. My guest is Noel Levine.
0: Hey, Michael. Hey, Noel.
1: Just kind a minute, Robert. Very, hey, quick. uh,
0: very quickly, I just want to uh, say that the fundamental component of enlightenment seems to be the realization that transformation is available to us all. That dovetails with the reality that teachers, saints, and masters tend to be made, not born, and Noel
2: is proof of that, and that's the good news.
1: Cool. We'll let you go at that. Thank you, man. Take care. Appreciate it. Your website again, Noel?
2: Dharmapunks.com, also againstthestream.com. Um,
1: Class Monday. Google night.
2: Noah Levine or Dharma Punks, and a lot of stuff will come up.
1: And Punks again is with an X. An X. Dharma Punks.
2: Pleasure to be on. Hey thank man, you so let's much. Let's do it again. Yeah, happy. yeah, it's
1: so nice to talk to you. I only wish we had more time. And uh, I, I, I really like the energy you bring to all of this. Thank it's you. young. It's vital. It's real. It's got street cred. And uh, thank you, man. Thanks. It's really in the KPFK vein, I think. <laughs> Good interviewing you. Mel Levine, again, Dharma Punks. The new book is Against the Stream. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. And uh, stay tuned to KPFK. My website, theagelesswisdom.com. And, of course, kpfk.org. We archive all of these shows. Join us next Friday. We'll be doing fundraising. We need you more than ever. And, as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Bennington.